I'm going to uh, read uh, from uh, Mark uh, chapter 2. That's our reading for today. Mark chapter 2, verses 1 to 12. Mark chapter 2, verses 1 to 12. You'll find that on page 1003 of our church Bibles. It'd be great if you could have your Bible open and in front of you. Help keep you awake so you have something to focus on. Let us hear God's word. Mark chapter 2, beginning to read at verse 1. A few days later, when Jesus again entered Capernaum, the people heard that he had come home. He gathered, they gathered such a lar- in such a large numbers that there was no room left, not even outside the door, and he preached the word to them. Some men came bringing to him a paralyzed man carried by four of them. Since they could not get to him to Jesus because of the crowd, they made an opening in the roof above Jesus by digging through it and then lowered the mat the man was lying on. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralyzed man, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now some teachers of the law were sitting there thinking to themselves, why does this fellow talk like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Immediately, Jesus knew in his spirit that this was what they were thinking in their hearts. And he said to them, why are you thinking these things? Which is easier, to say to this paralyzed man, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up, take your mat, and walk? But I want you to know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. So he said to the man, I tell you, get up, take your mat, and go home. He got up, took his mat, and walked out in full view of them all. This amazed everyone, and they praised God, saying, we have never seen anything like this. Let's bow our heads as we pray together. Heavenly Father, we bow now in your holy presence, and our prayer is that your word might be our rule, your spirit that he might be our teacher, and your honor and your glory alone might be our supreme concern for Jesus' sake. Amen. I'm not sure whether it was Oscar Wilde or George Bernard Shaw who said, there are two great tragedies in life. One is not to get the desire of your heart, and the other is to get it. Uh, During the recent Olympic Games, did you notice that athletes sometimes remark that as a child, they dreamed of competing in the Olympics, or of winning a medal. Now, for Team GP, of the 366 athletes that went to the Rio Games, over 64% did not come back with a medal. I take it that for some of them, it felt like a real tragedy not to get the desire of their heart. But what of the 130 athletes that included every member of the 15-strong cycling team that did get a medal. Where's the tragedy in that, I hear you ask? 
Well, the problem can be put like this. What happens when at, say, 21, 22, 23, 24, 25, whatever, years of age, you've achieved everything you've ever longed for or even dreamed of? What then? Life can become quite dull and boring and empty because, well, what now? What is there to look forward to? Uh, listen to the way uh, one American writer put it. I pity celebrities. No, I really do. Sylvester Stallone, Bruce Willis, Barbra Streisand were once perfectly pleasant human beings. But now their wrath is awful. You see, they wanted fame, they worked, they pushed, and the morning after each of them became famous, they wanted to take an overdose. Because that giant thing they were striving for, that fame thing that was going to make everything okay, that was going to make their lives bearable, that was going to provide them with personal fulfillment and happiness, has happened, and they are still them. The disillusionment turned them howling and insufferable. I don't know what you think is your greatest need or your heart's deepest desire. But what would happen if that need or desire were somehow met and you woke up the next morning to find that you were still, well, you? And worse still, everything was not okay and that you were not more fulfilled, more happy, more content than the day before. What then? How would you feel? I cannot help but repeat a favorite quote of mine from Hollywood actor Jim Carrey, who once said this, I think everybody should get rich and famous and do everything they ever dreamed of so they can see that it's not the answer. Deep in our hearts, we know this to be true, don't we? But even when we hear it from the horse's own mouth, as it were, we still don't want to believe that getting the desire of our sinful hearts can be just as tragic as, well, not getting it. Uh, the American writer, I, you saw the quote a few moments ago, included in her quote the following quite shocking statement. I think when God wants to play a rotten, a really rotten practical joke on you, he grants you your deepest wish and then laughs merrily when you realize you want to kill yourself. Now, I need to say to you at this point, and most especially if you would not call yourself a Christian here this afternoon, or you're not sure where you stand with spiritual things, that the God I have believed in and relied upon for nearly three decades now is not a God who plays those sorts of practical jokes on people. I, for one, could not trust in such a God. But more importantly, this is not the God we see depicted in our passage here this afternoon, Mark chapter 2. Which brings me to the first thing I want us to see that I believe God is saying to us through his word here this afternoon, which is this. Your greatest, your deepest need is to be forgiven. Your deepest need is to be forgiven. 
Last week, we learnt that God, the one and only King, in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ, the long and one and only awaited Messiah, has finally arrived. Now, according to early church tradition, the author of Mark's Gospel, a young man named John Mark, had been a secretary and a, a translator for Peter, one of the key disciples of Jesus, one of the 12 original disciples. And this helps us to explain why Mark's gospel is almost certainly the eyewitness testimony of Peter the apostle. If you read Mark's gospel, you will see that Peter is never very far away from the action. In fact, it's quite possible that the house where the events of chapter 2 verse 1 to 12 took place was indeed the house of Peter and his brother Andrew. Now, if you read chapter 1 of Mark's gospel, you will see that given all the healings and the preaching that Jesus did in and around the area of Capernaum, it's hardly surprising that the building and its surrounding area where he was where, he was, was packed solid full of people, verse 2, chapter 2, Mark's gospel. In the first century, there was a Jewish historian by the name of Josephus. Now, because Jesus had such an impact on Jewish history, Josephus mentions him in passing. And he wrote this. Now, there was about this time a wise man, if it be lawful to call him a man, for he was a doer of wonderful works, a teacher of such men as receive the truth with pleasure. And when Pilate, at the suggestion of the principal men among us, had condemned him to the cross, those who loved him at the first did not forsake him, for he appeared to them again alive on the third day. As far as we know, Josephus was not a follower of Jesus and was more interested in history and politics than Christianity. In other words, he had no axe to grind, as it were. Yet he describes Jesus as both a doer of wonderful works and a teacher of such men as receive the truth with pleasure. Notice at the end of verse 2 that Jesus was teaching the crowd in Mark chapter 2. And later in this passage, that same crowd marveled that he was indeed a doer of wonderful works, verse 12. So from outside of the New Testament, Josephus, a secular historian, confirms or gives support to that which is written inside the New Testament. Just an interesting fact. Now maybe he was heavier than they thought. Perhaps they set out too late or didn't understand or underestimated the demands to see Jesus. But a group of four men arrive carrying their mate on a stretcher. The capacity crowd meant they could not get to Jesus, but these men were not only good friends to their paralyzed friend, they were also quite determined. So instead of just giving up, they went around the side of the building, up the stairs, and onto the flat roof, verses 3 and 4. After making a hole in the roof, they lowered their friend on this mattress, presumably right in front of Jesus, nothing like getting his attention. No doubt the shards of light, dust, and falling bits of roofing caught everybody's attention, including Jesus. Clearly, these men believed Jesus could do something for their friend. 
But Jesus didn't get the memo. At least initially, Jesus does not seem to understand this man's need. You see, instead of saying to him, my son, rise up and walk. We read instead, verse 5, when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralyzed man, son, your sins are forgiven. What? I mean, imagine you have just been in a terrible car crash. Most of the bones in your legs have been broken. You're semi-conscious and in serious, serious pain. You get wheeled into the Lewisham Accident and Emergency Department, and the doctor on call sees you, and he says to you, my friend, I forgive you of all your sins. And with a big smile on his face, he slaps you on your damaged shoulder and sends you away without doing anything to alleviate your pain you would probably look back on that as a very surreal experience and one that was quite annoying. You might even be persuaded or tempted to sue the NHS. You see, I think if I were this man, I would have thought and perhaps even come out and said something like, um, thanks, but that's not really what I need. Actually, my heart's desire, Jesus, is to walk again. That's my most immediate need. That's my most pressing problem. Don't take this the wrong way, Jesus. But isn't it obvious? Can't you see it? But you see, in verse 5, Jesus is saying, I do understand your problems. I know that you cannot work to earn a living. That you need help eating and going to the toilet and washing yourself, and dressing yourself. I know all this. Truly, I do. I understand your suffering, my son. But if I just healed your body, I wouldn't really be giving you your true heart's desire. Nor would I really be meeting your deepest and your greatest need. I cannot allow you to believe that if only you could walk again, you'd be happier more fulfilled, or that your life would suddenly be okay. I cannot let you believe this because it's not true. And it would be wrong and irresponsible of me to let you think otherwise. It might take two, four, six, twelve months or longer, but the euphoria at being able to walk again would eventually evaporate. Here's the thing Jesus is saying to all of us in this room, no matter what our creed, culture, class, or color. The root of your discontentment are so deeply embedded in your human condition that being healthy, wealthy, famous, super intelligent, athletic, good-looking, musically gifted, successful in business or in your education, you name it, none of these things will be enough to give you the true happiness or the true sense of fulfillment that you crave in your heart. Jesus loves you so much that he will not allow us to believe that any of these things will meet our deepest need. 
Perhaps you're sitting here thinking, if only I got that job or that promotion. If only I had this person in my life. If only I were as talented or as good-looking as so-and-so. If only I had a body like him or her. If only, if only. See, when you think like that, there is a good chance you will turn that thing you desire or think you need into a kind of saviour. Such that if you don't get it, you feel angry and unhappy and empty. But here's the great irony. If you do get it, because it cannot ultimately satisfy, you end up feeling even more angry and unhappy and empty inside. You see, to turn a good thing into a God thing turns it into a bad thing. To turn perfectly good things like family, marriage, job, career, to magnify it so that it becomes a God-like thing in your life turns that very good thing into a bad thing that will never satisfy. I recently stumbled across an article entitled, What are famous people unhappy about? Let me read part of it to you. You know, this is something that I've noticed for some time now. When you really look at the eyes of some of the most famous people out there, you do not see happiness. The downside of fame is often more weighty than the up. Fame in the world does not bring true, real happiness. Stuff does not bring real happiness. Famous people are not free. True happiness is an inner knowing, not an outer acquisition, not acquiring things. People mostly want to be famous to feel a greater sense of importance and self-worth. That is an emotional and spiritual issue. The more fame they need, the deeper the problem they have. I wonder, do you believe that? Isn't that remarkable? Coming from just some secular writer. Perhaps your deepest need or greatest need is not to be famous. It probably isn't. But whether, whatever you think it is, Jesus wants to take you much, much deeper. He says your biggest need is forgiveness. And your biggest problem is that you are looking elsewhere for that forgiveness. You're looking for a savior that can't, can't deliver. You should be looking to him. So first, your greatest need, and mine, whether you feel like that or not, whether you believe it or not, is to know forgiveness. That's the first thing. The second thing is this. Jesus is the God who can truly forgive you. Actually, the word only should be in there. Jesus is the only God who can truly forgive you. Now, what Jesus says in verse 5 is so controversial that it leads to his first major run-in with the religious experts who overhear him, verses 6 and 7 of Mark chapter 2. They are shocked and angry because they think he is showing contempt and irreverence for the one true God. 
The question posed at the end of verse 7 is a valid one. According to the Old Testament, God alone could forgive sins. So they were right about that. As the main leaders here at Grace Church Broccoli, Nick, Simon and myself meet to pray most Sunday mornings. Imagine if during one of our meetings, I got really annoyed with Simon here and punched him on the nose. Simon collapses into a nearby chair with his hands covering his face, blood everywhere. Our meetings are nowhere near as exciting, by the way, so don't worry about it. It's, it's Simon's safe, okay? But then, after that happens, Nick approaches me and puts his hand on my shoulder and says, Raymond, even though that was a really impressive right hook, I forgive you for punching my friend Simon. It's all right, it's all over now, you are forgiven. You could understand Simon getting more than a little bit annoyed with Nick, couldn't you? Don't you think? He might say something like, Nick, how can you forgive him? He didn't wrong you, he punched me. I'm the only one who can forgive him. In other words, you can only forgive a sin if it is committed against you personally. Well, that is exactly the point Jesus is making here. What Jesus is actually saying to the paralyzed man in verse 5, and to you and to me, is this. First and foremost, primarily, fundamentally, when you and I sin, we have actually committed a sin against him. Now, the only person who could say that to a human being is the creator himself. In other words, Jesus is claiming here to be God Almighty himself in the flesh. And you may not be aware of this fact, but it is nevertheless one of the foundational pillars of the Christian faith. Jesus is God himself come in the flesh. In verses 6 and 7, these religious leaders understand fully what Jesus that Jesus is not simply claiming to be a miracle worker, a prophet, or even a political revolutionary. They understand he is claiming to be the Lord of the universe, and so they're furious with him. And in some ways, their reaction is better than the indifferent attitude of many people today in 21st century Britain. Given all this, it shouldn't surprise us that Jesus could read the motives of their heart in verse 8. His response, therefore, to these teachers of the law is to ask a penetratingly puzzling question in verse 9. Look at verse 9 with me. Which is easier, to say to this paralyzed man, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up, take your mat and walk? Now, this question has been puzzled over for 20 centuries, and yet we cannot truly understand this passage if we try to sidestep the question in verse 9. And the reason I think this is such a tricky question is because I've come to see that depending on your point of view, this question has more than one answer. You see, on one level, both questions are equally difficult to say because they both require a miracle if either is to happen. The first requires a spiritual miracle. The second requires a physical miracle. If either of them are to be realized. Both need a miracle. 
And generally speaking, miracles are God's domain and not yours and not mine. Despite what some people say and think today. See, I cannot forgive anyone here for sins committed against family members, friends, neighbours or work colleagues. Such sins are not for me or for you to forgive. At best, I can only forgive sins committed against me personally. And if only I could heal people like Deborah White, Tim's back, John's migraines, Nick's foot, Simon's shoulder, etc., etc. If a miracle is needed in any of these situations, only God can bring it about. But also there is another way you can look at this question, which is this. Having your sins forgiven is invisible, unlike healing a paralyzed man. Generally speaking, you cannot tell if someone has had their sins forgiven simply by looking at them. Perhaps on your way to work tomorrow morning, the person sitting next to you on the overground may be a fellow believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. But you will not be able to tell unless you engage them in conversation, which, of course, you must never do on the underground. (laughs) So on one level, it is easy to say to someone, your sins are forgiven because it cannot be verified in any way. But the opposite is true when it comes to saying to a paralyzed man, get up, take your mat and walk. Because, of course, that will become immediately verifiable, won't it? If you can do it, everyone will be able to see. If you can heal him, these words, with these words, it will become visible for everyone to see. So let me try and illustrate what I think is going on in verses 10 to 12 of Mark chapter 2. Imagine I said to you, did you know that I can walk on water? Me, I can walk on water. But wait a minute, look, uh, the baptistry the over there is all closed up and... Um, There's no water in it anyway, and so I can't possibly demonstrate to you that I can actually walk on water. So I know, I know what I'll do. I stand motionless with my hands in the air like this for a moment, and then slowly but surely, I begin to raise my body off the ground. In other words, I start to levitate 20, 30, 40, 100 centimeters off the ground for 10, 30 seconds. After safely landing back on planet Earth, I say to you, now do you believe I can walk on water? Well, some of you might understandably be a bit freaked out by that. (laughs) But others of you might be more inclined to believe that, well, perhaps he can walk on water after all. Well, I believe that is a bit like what is happening here in Mark chapter 2, verses 10 to 12. Jesus does the more visible thing, I heals the paralytic, in order to prove or to demonstrate that he has all of God's power here on earth, all of God's authority to do the less visible and arguably more important thing, which is to forgive the sins of this paralyzed man. And as you read verses 10 to 12, again, notice how verse 10 is worded, but I want you to know that the Son of Man, this is just a veiled way of Jesus referring to himself rather than using the word Messiah, which was full of unhelpful connotations, but I want you to know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, so he said to the man, I tell you, 
get up, take your mat, and go home. He got up, took his mat, and walked out in full view of them all. This amazed everyone, and they praised God, saying, we have never seen anything like this before. Jesus does the more visible miracle simply to confirm that he can do the less visible or the hidden miracle of forgiveness. Verse 12 emphasizes that everyone saw what happened because it was visible to the naked eye. And they praised God. In other words, they recognized that in Jesus Christ, God was clearly at work. God's kingdom had manifested itself in the words and actions of Jesus. But most crucially, what Jesus is doing is making plain the fact that he is the Messiah, the Son of God, and the Savior of your world. He is the God who can forgive you. You see, just as Jesus has the power to heal this man, he also has the power to give you what you think you need or deeply desire with your corrupt heart. Whether it be some sort of physical healing, greater success in your business, your career, a slimmer body, a better looking face, a bigger house, a healthier bank balance, a family, a nicer car, greater sporting press, more musical talent, a better education perhaps. You name it, Jesus could give it to you right here, right now. But Jesus knows that the only way to heal your inner discontentment and your deeply distorted inner needs and desires is not to be your divine genie or miracle worker, but to be your saviour. Remember what Josephus, that curious little phrase of Josephus, that first century historian I quoted earlier on? You might have missed it. He said this, if it be lawful to call him, i.e. Jesus, a man. You may have heard of a 1990s hit song by Joan Elizabeth Osborne called One of Us. In that song, she asks two questions. What if God were one of us? And if God had a name, what would it be? Well, the message of the Bible is that God indeed became one of us in the person of Jesus Christ. And his name is Jesus, Messiah, King. Furthermore, the Bible goes on to say that Jesus appeared so that he might take away our sin, yours and mine. As you read on in Mark's Gospel, you learn that even though he himself was the one offended by our foolish rebellion, even though he's the Lord of the universe, God himself, in the person of Jesus Christ, became a man so that he might willingly take his own punishment by dying in my place and in your place, in your stead and in my stead. That is how deeply our need for forgiveness flowed. Only God himself could go deep enough to deal with it, while also dealing with his wrath that we sang about earlier on. I remember the day the need for forgiveness was brought home to me in a new way. I was talking with a woman several years ago now. Uh, Let me just call her Penelope. It's not her real name. She related to me the story of a time she was living with a man who was not the father of her five-year-old son. She had to go to work one morning, so she asked him to walk her son to school. But that day, and for some reason, this man allowed her little boy to walk to school on his own. Tragically, he was knocked over and killed. Needless to say, 
Penelope's relationship with this man did not survive this dreadful, dreadful experience. But the thing that struck me that day was this. Looking at the pain on Penelope's face as she related this great sadness she carried around with her, I realized that the reason we all need to embrace first and foremost the forgiveness that Jesus freely offers each one of us is because only by doing that can we even begin to forgive ourselves for the many, many mistakes we have all made here, myself included, in this life. Penelope needed to know that Jesus could and would forgive her so that she could forgive herself for what happened to her child all those years ago. Jesus knows what is best for us. He says, your deepest need is to be forgiven. And he is the God who alone can forgive you. 